This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you would please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. John 9, and I will be reading the entire chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go wash in the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory, 
We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You are completely born in sins, and you are teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see and to know and to understand what you are teaching us through these words, that you would write them on our hearts that we would understand what it is to see and what that means concerning your son, Jesus Christ, and also what it is to be blind, for there is much blindness around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been working through the Gospel of John in the evenings, in the latter part of John 8, we saw a lengthy disputation by Jesus against the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem where Jesus revealed himself as the light of the world by which the world might become able to see. Now, some people did believe Jesus there, a few, but the resistance to Jesus was strong and continuing. Now, Jesus there also asserted that he was superior to Abraham. The scribes and the Pharisees were saying that they were right and they were superior to Jesus because of their status as Abraham's descendants. But Jesus countered with the accusation, the true accusation, that Abraham knew him and rejoiced to see his day, and that he is divine. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, and that his opponents had a different father that was Satan. So this is the light that Jesus came to shine to save people from their sins. 
But this light comes and it meets heavy resistance. As John said all the way back in chapter 1, the light shone into the darkness, but the darkness has not comprehended it. Well, what better way to illustrate this, to make an object lesson of the reception and rejection of the light, than in the account of a miraculous healing of a literal blind man. Someone who has walked in temporal darkness his whole life. He was born blind. Well, that is exactly what we get in John chapter 9. And we will look at this chapter tonight in four points. First, we see the sign in verses 1 through 12. Jesus will heal a man who was blind from birth. But that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning. Next, we see a squabble in verses 13 through 23. This healing, as with others before in John, will provoke controversy and condemnation from some. And third, we see a stand in verses 24 through 34. Not Jesus, but this healed blind man will defend himself and defend Jesus even at great cost to himself. And then fourth and finally, a savior in verses 35 through 41. Though this man suffers loss in taking his stand for Christ, what he receives is greater. So again, we have the sign, the squabble, the stand, and the Savior. So first we look at the sign in verses 1 through 12. So after Jesus leaves the confrontation of chapter 8, remember he's escaping death, they were ready to stone him, we read that he passes by this man who was blind from birth. Now, what would it mean? What would the implications be of being blind from birth in first century Jerusalem? Well, because this was the first century, it wasn't like now where if you have some kind of permanent disability like this, there'd be a social safety net or some other way to take care of such a person. So in that day, those who were disabled such that they could not work, which blindness would cause, they were generally left to beg for money and beg for food and the other resources they needed to survive. Now remember that Jesus' confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees happened at the temple. Now as begging went, the gates of the temple were prime real estate. Other places in scripture, we see the temple being a popular place for beggars to beg. And it was because people tended as they were coming to the temple, as they were thinking about God, they were thinking about worship, thinking about religious acts. They tended to be more generous. They'd be more likely to give alms to the poor. Plus, adjacent to religious festivals, the temple would be a busy place. It would have a lot of traffic. People would be coming from all over the world to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So if you're a beggar, this is a good opportunity to make some money. And so that's why this blind man was there. But the presence of this blind beggar provokes a question from the disciples. They ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this question probably strikes us as a little bit odd. We tend in our enlightened age to think that any sort of injury or illness or disability has a purely natural or scientific cause, which is true as far as it goes, but there is much precedent in Scripture for particular sufferings that come as the result of sin. 
See, all such suffering, all such conditions, illnesses, disabilities, and so forth, they come ultimately as a result of the fall and of sin. Man was created good. Man was created whole. Not intended to suffer things like this. But with the entrance of sin and death into the world, all of these other things with it, illness, disability, and so forth, they all come along too. There are instances in the Bible where particular sufferings are attributed to particular sins. A few months back, we looked at Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, the wicked priests in 1 Samuel. They were struck down for blasphemy and rebellion against God. Before that, you could think of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. They were priests who were killed for worshiping God in an unauthorized way. You could think of King Uzziah. He was struck as leprous when he tried to unauthorizedly do the work of a priest. David and Bathsheba saw the death of the child that resulted from their adulterous affair. I mention these things because we hear questions like this from the disciples and we think it's strange. We think it even callous or cruel to that they would even think that this blindness could come from a particular sin by him or his parents. But it's not unthinkable that it would. God did and can, and still he did and can still punish sin with temporal consequences. We confess in our catechism that part of the misery of the estate wherein two man fell includes all miseries in this life. In an indirect or direct way, they all arise from sin. However, that does not mean that all such suffering is directly attributable to particular sins. We could think of Job. He suffered as a righteous man, not because of any sin he did, but because Satan sought to test him. We can find no reason in Job or in anyone close to him that explains why he suffered the things that he did, his illness, death of his loved ones, the loss of his property. And then here in John 9, we are told from Jesus' answer to this question that this is another such case. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words... The very reason that this man suffered blindness his whole life was so that at this moment, the Son of God and Son of Man might come to glorify God through what is about to happen. Sometimes suffering is not attributable to sin, but rather to serve greater purposes only known to God and for His glory. We may not like this. We may struggle to grasp how this could be or how it's fair, but it can be true. Now Jesus continues to explain. He describes how he must work in verse 4, and he puts it in terms of day and night. Now this relates to what we saw at the end of chapter 8. Powerful men, the leaders of the Jews, the scribes and Pharisees, they sought his death. But Jesus' time has not yet come. And so they are unable to carry out their wicked and murderous schemes. It is still day. It is still time in Jesus' life and ministry for working. Until Jesus' time comes, until he subjects himself to his enemies so that he might suffer and die to make atonement for sins, 
and then after his resurrection, depart the world to the right hand of the Father. Until that time comes, Jesus will continue to do his work in the world, just as most of us work during the day and not at night. Most sorts of work are done during the day, under the light, when we can see. But Jesus himself is the light of the world. Not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. He separates light from darkness, day from night. Where he is, light is. And to be without him is to be in darkness. And he will now illustrate this in a very powerful way. In verse 6, we see that Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud and puts it on the eyes of the blind man. Now, this is a bit unusual as Jesus' miracles go. Often when Jesus heals, he just says the thing and it happens. But here he uses this mud. And we don't really know for sure why he did it that way. Probably this and the additional requirement of going and washing in the pool are a test of faith. A test of obedience. Also, just practically speaking, it gives Jesus some time to get away because remember, the Pharisees are trying to kill him. But if you think about it, the idea of putting someone else's spit and mud over your eyes, it's pretty unpleasant. That's not really something you want to do. And then on top of that, this man had to walk his blind self and his muddy eyes to the pool and wash there. One tasked with such a thing might say, that's crazy, I'm not doing that. But Jesus knows who are his, and his spirit works faith and obedience that proceeds from it in his people. And we first see this in this man that despite these rather strange orders, he follows them, he carries them out, he does what he's told. He goes to the pool, he washes, and now he can see. Now remember, this man had been blind from birth. He had never been able to see. He would not have even had a concept of seeing. And yet now he can see. I wonder what that was like. Imagine being an adult, never having had a particular one of your senses, and then yet suddenly acquiring it. That would be quite something. Now, in a certain sense, this illustrates Jesus' purposes as the light of the world. He comes to the blind. He comes to those who cannot see. Those who on their own have never been able to see, and he gives them the light of life. And that is what is being shown here. So the man, now able to see, comes back to the temple. Now, he had apparently been there for a while. He was a known quantity there. He had been blind his whole life, and his begging would have been a regular feature at the temple. But suddenly, he's there, and he can see like everyone else, and this causes a bit of commotion. In verses 8 and 9, there is confusion. They wonder, is this really the guy we know who was born blind, who has never been able to see? Some believe he is, some don't. They think he might be like the man, maybe he's got an evil twin somewhere or something, but, but he must be someone else because people born blind don't just start to see. But this man says that he is, in fact, the same blind beggar that was there earlier that day. Which leads to the natural question, well, how were your eyes opened? 
And the man without hesitation tells them, Jesus did this. He made the mud and sent him to the pool, and now he can see. Of course, in the time since, Jesus has left the area. Again, remember, he was escaping a mob that was trying to stone him. But on the way out, he did this miraculous sign, giving sight to a man who had lived his whole life in darkness. Now, this should be a powerful and joyous occasion. But we find out that not everyone is happy about it. And that brings us to our next point. After the sign, we come to the squabble in verses 13 through 23. The healed man is brought to the Pharisees. You know, the same Pharisees that just wanted to stone Jesus. And we learn another detail about this day. It was the Sabbath. Now, we have seen this before. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. In doing so, he drew the ire of the leaders of the Jews. So here we go again. The Pharisees interrogate the man. They ask him how Jesus did this, which the man explains. And then this causes a division, a conflict among the Pharisees. Some, in verse 16, consistent with what we have seen from them, they contend once again that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. And as such, he is not from God. Not to spend too much time retreading ground we have before, but the Pharisees at the time of Jesus had basically turned the Sabbath into something that it was never meant to be. It was supposed to be a day of joyous worship and rest from worldly things. But they imposed on it their rules and traditions and customs that had nothing to do with what God required of his people. So among the many offenses Jesus did against them, for which they sought his death, was asserting his authority over the Sabbath and his ability to do works of necessity and mercy on it, to do what was good, to do what was needful. Now what is fascinating this time around is that it seems that more of the Pharisees are at least initially sympathetic to Jesus' cause. They reject the assertion that Jesus is a sinner and Sabbath-breaker because he is demonstrating this kind of power. How could a sinner heal a man born blind? While the Pharisees have hated and opposed Jesus, even some of them must be forced to acknowledge that it appears that God is working through him. But since they can't decide among themselves what to think of Jesus, they ask the healed man. And he says that Jesus is a prophet. Now, this is true enough. It's incomplete knowledge, but it does mean that at the very least, this man believes that Jesus is from God and that the healing he experienced is from God. Yet it seems that this is not enough to sway the court. It seems that some even start to question if this man was really blind, so much so that they even call in his parents to verify. Some of, the ver some of the Pharisees, they are so desperate to deny the power and the wonders of Jesus, they think, well, this really must not be the guy we think it is, or he's a fraud. Well, the parents, who would have known their son's blindness from the beginning, they come in and testify that, yes, this is in fact their son, and yes, in fact, he was blind. However, they are unwilling to admit why their son can now see. 
And we see in verse 22 the reason why. These leaders of the Jews had essentially put an embargo against Jesus. If anyone among them confessed that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, they would be put out of the synagogue. Now this was a heavy price to pay. The synagogues were not only the religious centers of the Jewish people at the time, but they were also the cultural and economic centers. Most of Jewish life ran through the synagogue. To be put out of the synagogue carried not only religious significance, it was excommunication, it was in their eyes being cut off from the people and separated from God. It also meant losing your family, your friends, probably your business if you had one. It was a heavy toll. So much so that the parents of this man aren't even willing to speak for their son at the risk of being put out. But the son will speak for himself. And this brings us to our next point. After the sign and the squabble, we come to the stand in verses 24 through 34. It seems that in verse 24, though they were previously divided, the Pharisees have now come to a consensus that Jesus is a sinner. In light of what we've just read, maybe those who were sympathetic were threatened with excommunication or even given excommunication. So now all that's left are those who think that Jesus is a sinner and a fraud. And they want this man to renounce his previous claim that Jesus is a prophet. But this man has experienced the power of Jesus firsthand, and he's not willing to go along with their demands. He answers in verse 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. Now, this is true. While Jesus has revealed his healing power to this man, he does not yet know who Jesus really is, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That is coming. But what this man cannot deny is that he started this day as he had every day of his life, blind, unable to see, having never seen, not even having a concept of what sight was. And yet now he could see. On verse 26, the Pharisees press further. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They already knew. He already told them. And he tells them that he has already told them. Seems they're grasping at straws. They're looking for any reason they can come up with to explain why Jesus is not who he has claimed to be. They are so blinded by their sin and rebellion and hatred that this clear-cut case of a miracle by which this man sees must be denied at all costs. The man does not understand this yet. He asks, do you also want to become his disciples? And we read that they revile him. They mock him. They once again try to push their false dilemma. They say, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. They claim that they are the followers of Moses and the keepers of the law. Even though, remember, this whole time they have been plotting to murder Jesus. Some law keepers they are. But as Jesus has claimed and demonstrated, he has true authority and true interpretation of the law because he is the lawgiver. 
And it should be obvious that a miracle of this magnitude, for which no other explanation can be provided, must be from God. But the Pharisees' spiritual blindness trumps all. The man understands this in his response, starting in verse 30. He is very bold. He actually rebukes the very men who hold the power of excommunication from the synagogue over him. But he is more interested in the truth. His argument is basically this. Only one who is from God can do what Jesus has done. God does not hear sinners. This means that God would not grant his healing power through those who are against him. There is no way that anyone who is in high-handed rebellion against God, like the Pharisees, think that Jesus is, the Pharisees think Jesus is in this rebellion. There's no way any man like that could do what Jesus has done. Summed up in verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But the Pharisees will hear none of this. They offer a final rebuke in verse 34. You were completely born in sins and you are teaching us? They seem to think that they know better. The answer to the disciples' inquiry back at the beginning of the chapter. This man suffered for his sins and he is still a sinner. Because he's a sinner, he has no right to teach him. Which in this, they betray their own self-superiority, their own pride. They view him as a sinner. They view themselves as not being sinners. They think they've got it right, that they keep the law as they should. But they do not realize that even their best works are filthy rags, that they sin even in how they treat this man who makes a true profession concerning Christ. But they don't care. They are blind. The light, Jesus has shown in their midst, and yet they prefer their darkness and they will remain there. And they take out their prideful wrath on this man. They do what they have threatened. They cast him out of the synagogue. But this is not the end of the man's story, and this brings us to our final point. After the sign, the squabble, and the stand, we now come to the Savior in verses 35 through 41. Now, notably absent from this story for some time is Jesus himself. What essentially occurred in the court of the Pharisees was a proxy war. They could not persecute Jesus, for Jesus had escaped them, so they persecute this man instead. And such is life in this fallen, sinful world for many of God's people even today. The world failed to silence and shut down Christ and Christianity so it persecutes his people. But Jesus comes to this man in verse 35, and he asks him the question of all questions. Do you believe in the Son of God? Now we see in the man's response that he has been readied for belief. This should be understood as the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, but he lacks information. He asks, Who is he, Lord? that I may believe in him. And Jesus, knowing that it is one of his own who has sought him, though he has often spoken in veiled ways, he makes a full and clear revelation of himself to this man. You have both seen him, 
and it is he who is talking with you. Now remember at the start of the day, this man wasn't seeing anything. And yet now he has seen with his eyes and heard the words of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And this man responds in faith, Lord, I believe. He now has the information. His heart had been prepared by a supernatural regenerating work to receive it. And he responds in worship. This man becomes a Christian that very day. Though he was blind and suffering and miserable, he was made to see. But this physical healing was only an analogy of a spiritual truth. This man was not only blind in his eyes, but in his heart to the truth. But the same Jesus who opened his eyes opened his heart to receive the gospel, to receive the saving knowledge of him. But what about these Pharisees? Well, we see Jesus' purposes in this episode as it pertains to them. In verse 39, Jesus begins a short teaching concerning what has happened. He says, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. The Pharisees hear this and sense that maybe he's talking about them. They ask, Are we blind also? And Jesus answers, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, the Pharisees have sinned by asserting their own rightness and righteousness. Their claims to seeing, their claims to being the ones who hold and teach the truth of God, when in reality they are groping around in spiritual darkness. This man whom they have scoffed and despised, has received what they do not. Not just physical sight, but spiritual sight. The eyes of his heart have been opened to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. And in this teaching, we see the entire significance of this passage. The work of Jesus Christ is to make a division between those who are his those whom he calls to eternal life and salvation, and those who would remain in their sin and misery and blindness. Many people think they see. They think that they understand the world, understand themselves, and even that they have nothing to fear in death and judgment. They trust in their own works. They trust in false religions. They trust in the lies that the spirit of the age tells them that, God is not real, and this world is all that there is, and that we should have absolute autonomy and control over ourselves. And this is the judgment. Those who think they see, but do so apart from Christ, are blind. They are hardened in their hearts, and unless he intervenes, they are on their way to eternal condemnation. But Jesus also came so that the blind may see. Jesus came to seek and save what was lost. He came to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To those who receive him, those who believe in his name, to those who accept his testimony that he is the Son of God, he is the Lamb of God who by his suffering and death takes away sins, 
those who believe that He was raised from the dead and lives even now to make intercession for us, those who believe that He will return for them, to those who believe, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Those are the options. Those are the possible outcomes. There's the way of the world's blindness. It may make for ease and acceptance now, but its end is death. This healed blind man could have gone this route. He could have kept his family, kept his place in the synagogue, kept his social acceptance. But for what? If Jesus Christ has opened your eyes, you know that though his way might be a way of suffering and sorrow and loss in this life, it is the way, it is the only way of eternal hope and salvation. If you have not yet believed in him, the gospel is put before you again this evening. Repent of your sins, believe in Christ for everlasting life. Now, perhaps you are like this blind man. You believe Christ, but for his name, you suffer loss. You suffer resistance. You suffer rejection. Know that Christ sees and knows and that he is with you and he is for you and he will vindicate his children. When he comes in final judgment, those who claim to see while oppressing and persecuting his people will be exposed for their blindness. But those he has given to see will have eternal life and blessedness with him. Now, furthermore, as the world gropes around in its darkness, we have, we know the words of life. The only words of life by which they might see. And we be faithful to take the message of Christ to where it has not been heard. Even if it costs us like we cost this man. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you that you have opened the eyes of your children to hear and understand your word and to believe in you and to have the hope of everlasting life that comes only from you. I pray that all here tonight would have this sight, that by your spirit you would work it in them so that they would see. And I pray that those of us who do know you would be faithful to take these words of life to a lost and dying world that gropes around in its darkness and blindness. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.